1: Welcome to the Circuit of Success. I'm your host, Brett Gilliland, co-founder and CEO of Visionary Wealth Advisors and the host of this podcast. And today I've got Aaron Klein. Aaron, what's going on, man?
0: Oh, man. So excited to be with you, Brett. Thanks for having got me.
1: A- you got a nice studio. I mean, you got a real studio. I'm just sitting here in my office with a couple <laughs> TVs in the background and a microphone. You got the real deal. Yeah,
0: I mean, but you've got a two camera setup and the whole nine yards. Yeah, we we'll switch know, right check there. Check that out. Check that out. Yes, but yes. Anyway, it is just so great to be with you, and yeah. thanks for having me on. I appreciate Absolutely. it.
1: Absolutely. You are the co-founder and CEO of Riskalyze. That's right. In our business, that's a uh, it's a big company and you're helping clients understand their number, what's their risk number, how much risk should they take? And I don't want to steal your thunder, but just to just give everybody a little background of who you are and what you do and kind of really what's made you the man you are today if you don't mind sharing
0: absolutely. Sure. Well, in terms of the company, yeah, Riskalyze started from the standpoint of trying to empower the world to invest fearlessly. And we really believe that the best way to do that is, is by helping financial advisors get their clients to understand how to react to risk appropriately. Because If you know what, what we figured out, I think a while ago was that if man, if you can help a financial advisor kind of build a framework for their client to understand and react to risk appropriately, you can take a fearful investor who makes bad short-term decisions and turn them into a fearless investor who makes really great short-term decisions. And that after all is, is kind of the fuel, the input that financial, that great financial advisors need to create those amazing long-term financial outcomes. I, I, I played a little bit of a joke on an audience of financial advisors. Once I said, I said, all right, Raise your hand if you help your clients make great long-term decisions. Bunch of hands in the room went up. I'm like, I'm sorry, it's a trick question. Like your clients don't make long-term decisions. They make short-term decisions and you... Turn short-term decisions into long-term financial outcomes, and so you know that's we we just feel so incredibly grateful for the opportunity to stand behind tens of thousands of financial advisors who successfully do that every year, yeah. and it's because of those financial advisors that we get to achieve our mission.
1: That's awesome. I love the mission. And, and talk to us a little bit about that. Where, where were you at before? What did you see? Yeah, I obviously sure. saw an opening there, and you said, "Hey, man, there's a." Huge opportunity because you don't just go out and co-found a company and take a massive risk and build something without you seeing a, a big need, I would assume.
0: Yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, you say, how did you become the the man that you are? And I'd, I'd have to give a lot of credit to my wife. I married up in a big way. And my three kids who have given me my first aspects of gray hair. It's coming in fast. <laughs> uh, There's I've got No, 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 no. But they're <laughs> 17, 14 and 12. So it's coming okay. in fast. It's That's coming right, in fast, right. man. But I actually started, my, my story is kind of crazy. I started working at the age of 12 years old in the afternoons after school for my dad. He knew nothing about child labor laws or minimum wage laws. He knew nothing (laughs) about either of those things. (laughs) I, you know, I think my first week I probably worked, I don't know, 12 or 13 hours and I got a paycheck for like $5. So, you know, it, it, uh, (laughs) like I said, nothing about minimum wage or child labor laws, but I loved it. And I, I learned a lot, you know, a couple of years later, my voice had deepened out. He let me start answering the phone, working with customers. It was a brutal business, by the way. It was wholesale distribution of like automatic gate security equipment. So not the manufacturer who builds the differentiated product and not the, you know, the installer who owns the distribution with the customer, but the middleman who is just trying to like get the product from point A to point B. And so like 18% gross margins, like, like not, not the world's greatest business, but you know, it was an industry my dad loved, and it was a labor of love for him. And he taught, Me so many things in that. One was that it takes immense grit to be an entrepreneur, you know, and to and to kind of work your way through building a business. And the second was pretty simple, which was: hey, we've got the same products as everybody else. This is a relationship-driven business. If we take care of our clients, they will take care of us. And You know, it's not an exact corollary to financial advice because financial advisors have a lot of differentiation in how they deliver and how they work with clients and things like that. But there are some, there's certainly some things I learned about that, which is that, you know, relationships are number one. And we've always sought to put that at the heart of, of how we built Riskalyze. And so, you know, from there, I did a couple of different things with the internet, kind of at the intersection of finance and tech. And then, you know, I was recruited to run global product for a division of an options brokerage firm. And so I'm leading teams that are building technology products for options traders. And one day I said to a buddy of mine, Mike, who is a financial advisor, I'm like, it is crazy how the average individual thinks about the concept of risk. (laughs) And he said, if you think that's crazy, you should see how many of us financial advisors think about it. Like we just have not had the tools in this profession to really understand who clients are and then match that up with the risk and portfolios. And when we started to dig into it, you know, it, it became really clear how true that was. We, we use these terms in, in this profession like conservative and moderate and aggressive, right? And yep. we have no idea if the three people at the table, the financial advisor, the client, and the asset manager mean the same things by the words conservative, moderate, and aggressive. And you know, it's like when we built out our office, right? Like the contractor and the architect did not communicate by saying, remember, he wants a moderately conservative hallway leading to his moderately aggressive studio. <laughs> you know,
1: like right. they put feet and inches. Right.
0: Yeah, they put feet and inches onto those blueprints. And that's how, you know, that building came together. And so, you know, we looked at that and said, somebody needs to put the feet and inches into this for financial advisors. And that's really how the risk number was born. And so, you know, here we are 10 years later, like I said, just so grateful to have the opportunity. To stand behind tens of thousands of financial advisors who care so deeply about doing the right thing for their clients and helping their clients get to yep. the other side. And they do such a noble thing in the world. And it just, it, it's an incredible, it's an incredible pleasure to get to stand behind them in that way.
1: Well, that's cool. And they all have high expectations. So for you sure. as a leader of organization, dealing with a bunch of advisors is not an easy thing to do. And, <laughs> you
0: know, that's, and that's the thing is that no matter how well you meet those expectations, customers' expectations go up every year yeah. as yeah. well. They should, right? I think, right. I think they deserve the right to, to right. make that happen.
1: That's right. But the three kids may give you more gray hair than the uh, being a CEO and co-founder of a fintech firm. It's probably but, uh, true. It's so probably where do you, where do you see our industry going, man? When you when you look at, you know, it's June here 2021. I mean, when you yeah. look out at 2025 or 2030, wherever your mind yeah. goes. I mean, what do you what do you see for our industry? I am
0: wildly optimistic and wildly bullish on the future of financial advice. I say that because as great, you know, I mean, I'm a technology guy, as great as technology is, I really do not believe that technology can replace the core value proposition that financial advisors actually deliver, which is empathy, which is uh, coaching and the ability to understand where somebody is and connect with them and, and understand their fears and their concerns and connect with them on a human level and say, we're gonna get to the other side. We're gonna make right. it through this stress that we're that we're living right now. And the way we're wired as humans is to take action and do exactly the wrong thing when we're fearful. Right. Like that's, that's the whole problem that exists in investing. And that's why we said that our mission as a company was empowering the world to invest fearlessly. And, and financial advisors are such a critical part of that puzzle, the most important part of that puzzle, frankly, because it takes a human connecting with a human to empathize and, and halt fear in its tracks and turn it around and make it turn into conviction mm. and, the, and the right steps forward. You can't do that with a computer. Our technology is some of the best in the world at helping clients see and understand what their advisors have been telling them for years. But it takes the advisor delivering that message with yeah. empathy and connection for it to work, right? Yeah. So I am just wildly optimistic about the future of financial advice in our profession. Now, Does it look differently in the future than it does today? It probably does. Financial advisors who who don't like to connect with people and deliver that kind of empathy and deliver that kind of guidance and coaching and help are probably not going to do too well in that future. If all you want to do is collect 100 basis points to sell a pie chart, I'll tell you what, BlackRock's doing that for free on their website. Right. right. You know, so, so like, that's not a really great value proposition, but if you're in a position to say, I'm going to take something that is complicated and something that is important. Right. And I'm going to solve the problem for you. And, and when the going gets tough, I'm going to be here to help you make sure that we're making the right decisions and navigating our way through uh, the, the, you know, the turbulence that we may experience that is worth, you know, it's weight in gold. And yep. I, I yep. think that advisors, frankly, undervalue uh, their, their value to the client uh, in a lot of cases. I mean, we're only five years um, removed from a time when every advisor was like, oh my gosh, I have to figure out how to compete with Wealthfront. How do I do my work for 25 basis points? Right. And, you know, it turns out that Wealthfront was kind of like E trade with a new coat of paint over it, right? And, <laughs> and that's not who financial advisors were right. competing with. So I, you know, I, I just, I'm very bullish on the future of financial yeah. advice. It has a, a place in this world for a long, long time.
1: Yeah. And I am as well. I mean, obviously doing what we do for a living, but I think that it, no matter what, right, as, as things become more complicated in our world, people want somebody there to hold your hand, right? And I talked about the two emotions, fear and greed. And those are things we deal with every single day working with clients is the fear. What if my money goes down? The greed, I want my money to go up, right? I want to hit the home run. And I think that, you know, I couldn't agree more with what you said. That person there, I call it Pandora's box. Everybody's got one. It's our job as advisors to get the key open that, find out what's truly important to them. And, and really, quite frankly, and all, I mean, kind of jokingly, but kind of serious is be a, a psychologist, right? a 100%. psychologist for the clients. Would you agree 100%. with that?
0: Yeah, hundred percent. And it's funny that you say that because somewhere I still have the original pitch deck uh, from 2011, when I was pitching early angel investors on investing in this, in this company, <laughs> you know, uh, that, that became riskalized. And, and, you know, one of the slides setting up the story basically said every single human decision is based on one of two emotions, fear or greed. Oh, wow. Uh, Yeah. I promise
1: I didn't get that slide back. (laughs) Well, so,
0: you know, and and it's true. It's, it's like, it is the prime. And a lot of people go, you know, kind of bristle at the word greed there. And I go, okay, you want to say opportunity, like whatever you want to do. The point is, is it's either a negative motivation where we're going, I don't want this to happen to me. Therefore, I'm going to take this action or a positive motivation. I want this to happen to me. Therefore, I'm going to take this action. So, yep. put whatever labels you want on it. Yep. But, like, those are the two ways that we can be motivated to take action. And I think that the really interesting question is, um, you know, I, that, that Risk helps to answer is how is this client primarily motivated? And how does that change up and down their personal financial spectrum? That's why, for example, the Risk Risk Assessment is completely quantitative and you can't print it out and put it in front of the client because every answer that you give as you're moving up and down that client's personal financial spectrum is determining the next question in the underlying math to go where up and down their financial spectrum, do they prefer risk and where do they prefer certainty? I like to say Warren Buffett and I might have the same risk number. I don't know, but I can tell you this. If if I put Warren Buffett's dollar amount into riskalyze and went through the process, I have no idea how it'd turn out because I can't relate to his money. So it's kind of it's going to be a bogus answer, however it turns out, right? Yep. Because I don't actually know how to relate or how I would feel with fear or greed with his dollar amounts. I right. only know that from my dollar amounts, right? I can and imagine while, it'd
1: be a little less uh, worrisome, wouldn't it? With his probably,
0: probably. <laughs> but, but, but I will say this: I do know that Warren Buffett would be a risk 99 if you put in my money and the reason i know that is it's a trivial amount of money it's like risk 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 <laughs> risk, risk right 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 <laughs> so so it's a it's a it's a fascinating thing that happens when we actually bring the client's dollar amounts into the picture and then understand how it changes their motivation between fear and greed as yeah. we move up and down their financial spectrum that's really so the like- core of where Riskalyze started
1: so question one is is question one, but question two could be different based on if you and I are taking this exact same thing. We yes. both, if we're sitting side by side, we could see two totally different questions on question number two.
0: Sure, even if we put the same dollar amount in, if you chose risk on the first question and I chose certainty on the first question, we're gonna yep. see a very different question too yep. because now we're trying to test a different part of, our financial spectrums right. to understand, you know, where our sensitivities yeah. are.
1: And then the output is just, is great too, right? I mean, the output that you guys have is phenomenal to help that client and serve that client. So, yeah, that's really been a
0: key part of, I think our success and and the success of the advisors we serve is, is that, you know, the output that we created, which, it, you know, it started with this risk number idea. And I, I can remember, you know, feverish debates in 2011 and 2012, you can't take risk and boil it down to one number. And, you know, and and I, you know, I I ultimately what won the day there was, hey, look, we get that there's a lot of complexity under the hood. We get that there's a lot of methodology that is gonna lead to that number. But yep. at the end of the day, what we're going for here is helping these clients see and understand the things that their advisors have been telling them for years. And the speed limit sign metaphor just kind of stuck. And, uh, that has just been an incredible, I don't know, just a rocket ship on, on, you know, I think the businesses of the advisors we serve because their, their clients are looking at this and going, I get risk for the first time for, for whatever reason, when I look at standard deviation metrics, I'm not understanding it, but I see the speed limit sign and it's like, I get it.
1: Okay. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, that, that makes total sense. That makes total sense. So what, what do you see from and When I did my research, you mm-hmm. talked about how do you turn clients into heroes, yeah. Yeah. And, and so when you say that, what does that mean to you? Yeah. yeah. So, you know, a lot of that idea comes out
0: of the storytelling framework, which oh. one of the best books to read on that is Donald Miller's Story Brand book, phenomenal right? Book. Phenomenal <laughs> book. And there's a couple other good books on on kind of the storytelling framework, but uh, but that one's definitely the best. But, you know, the idea here is that I I, I like to say it this way, financial advisors do heroic work. So uh, it's really easy for them to slide into the role of being the hero of the story, right? Yep, yep. But the problem is, is that if you allow yourself to become the hero of this story, your client is just a spectator. They're sitting on the couch with popcorn. Okay. Yeah. And, and if you think about that level of disengagement, like I'm sitting back on the couch and I'm just eating popcorn. Okay. Watching this movie and you're the financial advisor, you're the hero that becomes a very transactional relationship. Like, what have you done for me in the last 10 minutes of this movie? Okay. And, and, and the truth is, is that like, can a financial advisor single-handedly save the day and get the client to the other side? No, no. They cannot, they, they, they need the client deeply engaged in making the right short-term decisions that that financial advisor can then transform into those long-term outcomes. Right. And so, you know, the realization in that story, that storytelling framework is that financial advisors have to, you know, make their client, the hero, and they have to assume that role of the guide. And for those who haven't read this book, like the storytelling framework, think about it, like in the, in the lens of star Wars, like- every great story has a hero who has a problem or a challenge they need to overcome. And then typically a guide appears on the scene and the hero has to decide if they're going to follow the guide's advice. And, you know, and ultimately we're going to find out if this story is a, is a happy ending or a sad ending, but like, that's, that's the story. Yeah. And, you know, Star Wars, Luke Skywalker is, is the hero, but Obi-Wan Kenobi is the guide and, and they've, you know, that's the story. Well, you as the advisor have got to play the Obi-Wan Kenobi role. You can't, do the, the, the hero role, you've got to put your client in the hero role and show them that they've got the tools to get the other side. If they follow your advice as the guide.
1: Well, and then you also think using your store, star Wars analogy, whether it's, you know, the stormtroopers and all the other guys right. Coming at you, that that's inflation. That's taxes. That's yeah. high returns, low returns. Right. And so yes. when, you, when you see that, let's take the star Wars and apply it to the yeah. client. Now, what do you, what do you see there?
0: Yeah. I'm now I'm trying to figure out what the tractor beam is in this analogy that might be <laughs> uh, you know, yeah. excessive internal expense ratios or something like that. But yeah, uh, <laughs> um, Yeah. I mean, I mean, that's true. Like, like those are, those are the outside forces attacking our story. Those are the, are the problems and the challenges that we have to, to overcome to get there. And I would also throw in like, like, what about like unexpected life events that are hitting the client? Like, this is a lot of the stuff that you as their guide are helping get them through. I didn't expect that my father-in-law was going to unexpectedly die of cancer. And my mother-in-law was going to need to move in with us and we need to add on to the house. And like, how is that going to impact my retirement? How am I going to make that work? I did not expect that my son or daughter was going to go through an unexpected health situation. And I don't know if insurance is going to cover it and how am I going to make sure that they're okay and get the treatment that they need? You know, these are the kinds of things that hit us in life and, you know, a a financial advisor standing there as the guide, um, you know, can play a huge role in, in helping get clients through. Now let's flip it. If the financial advisor is the hero of the story, then when, you know, inflation and taxes and, you know, lower returns than we want hit, I'm like, this movie sucks. (laughs) Right. Looks like I need to go buy a different ticket and go to a different movie. Yeah. Yeah. And and the reality is, is that, you know, you as, as a financial advisor cannot control the markets. It's not within your power to make those returns be what you want them to be or to make inflation be what you want it to be or to make taxes be what you want it to be. But if you if if the you know if you've got this set up where the client's in the right role and you're in the right role, man, it, it makes for a better
1: advisor-client
0: relationship. I think.
1: Yeah, that's good. Great, great wisdom there. So let's talk about another key, uh, key point. Here is the keys to client confirmation bias. Oh yeah,
0: I you know confirmation bias is one of those fascinating fascinating topics in in kind of behavioral economics and behavioral finance because confirmation bias is they call it the mother of all biases, right? It's the idea that... Um I am, I am very likely to believe that the decision that I, that I, that I've already made is correct. So everything I see kind of confirms that the decision I made is correct. Yep. And, you know, I tend to, I tend to seek out opinions that will drive my confirmation bias and, 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 and prove that I was correct. I tend to watch, you know, TV channels that will generally speaking, confirm that my mm-hmm. opinions or that, or that, you know, my decisions have been correct. And so confirmation bias is incredibly incredibly, incredibly powerful. And I will tell you, you know, confirmation bias is what drives most of the bad returns that investors see in the markets, right? Because they see something bad happen in the markets. They see a bunch of red on the screen. They see a bunch of people on CNBC saying, oh, this is horrible. Like this is, this this stock is plummeting. It's bad. This market is plummeting. It's bad. You know, this is bad, 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 bad. And they're like, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a human. I have to take action. There's a rustle in the, in, you know, in the woods, I, I gotta, I gotta jump into action and I gotta do something. And so, and so, and, and that ultimately, you know, again, if we sell low, we will assuredly, you know, when, when markets are down and then we wait until the markets feel safe again. And then we buy in back at the yeah. high, if we rinse and repeat, we're going to be broken 30 years, you know, sure. like that, that's how that works. So, all this to say, one of the things that we were talking about in the early days of founding Riskalyze in in, in twenty eleven and twenty twelve, I, I would tell you we were dead wrong about something. We said we're going to start this company and we're going to figure out a way to defeat confirmation bias, and 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 because that's that's kind of like if you want to make people fearless investors, you've got to defeat confirmation bias. You've mm-hmm. got to just kill it, and you've got to find a way to help people overcome confirmation bias. And I would tell you that, you know, a year and a half or so into our journey and, you know, working with lots of, we were, we were doing a lot of different things to validate the technology. We came to a really fascinating conclusion. It was absolutely impossible to defeat confirmation bias. It's the mother <laughs> of all biases. Right. It cannot be defeated. Okay. And so then a really fascinating idea hit us. What if we flip the coin there? What if we harnessed confirmation bias? Because... If instead, what we do is we help the client see and understand the decision that they're making. Hey, I'm a risk 52 and a risk 52 portfolio has a 95% historical range of, you know, something like minus eight to plus 12% over a six month period. Okay. That's normal historical behavior for a risk 52 portfolio. I'm, I'm just making these numbers up. Okay. Sure if if i make the decision that that portfolio is right for me okay when i'm talking to my to my advisor 6 months later let's say some volatility is hitting in a bad way it puts the financial advisor in a place now let's say that portfolio is down 5 or 6% it puts the financial advisor in a very strong position to say now i know it doesn't feel good to be down 5 or 6% but let's remember the decision that we made six months ago. We said that we wanted to get the benefit of this much return, so we had to take this much risk to get it. And we were right, like this is the right decision for us because this is the portfolio that's gonna get us to the long-term financial outcome we're trying to achieve. So even though we may have some short-term losses in the portfolio, you were right in the decision you made six months ago. And the right decision that makes logical sense is to stay the course. Okay. So that's, that's harnessing confirmation bias to get the person to go. Yeah. The decision I made was right. And I'm going to stick with that decision. And ultimately, we found a way to make the mother of all biases work for the investor instead of against the
1: investor. Beautiful. And if if, so, if it's your idea, it's the gospel, right? I mean, it's... <laughs> but that that's that's how confirmation bias works, right. right?
0: Like if it's my idea, it must be right. It must be and, right.
1: Yeah. And all go. social media is doing that. I mean, everything is driving yes. us to have confirmation bias. 100%. Know? So 100%. I'm trying to think of oh, the social dilemma. Did you watch that on Netflix? I
0: haven't watched it yet. I heard yeah, The preview oh. looked uh, you know, scary, to yeah. say the least. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I had to watch, it took me a little bit to watch it. I was like, Oh gosh, this is exactly what's happening in my life right now. So a uh, little crazy, a little crazy. My life sure, gets but.
0: better when I, uh, I, I I'll i tell you, like I, last year, uh, a small confession, like I went on to Facebook and I'm like, okay, this is a tough year. I'm talking about 2020, like in the middle yeah. of the pandemic, right? I'm like, this is an interesting year. I'm like, my, I, I, I really do not want to hear any of my friends who are arguing against masks or for masks. Like I'm not interested in it. If that's what you've decided to make your Facebook page about, I don't want to unfriend you. I'm just going to mute you because, and right. I got to tell you, it turned Facebook back into something that was cool. I'm like, I'm seeing people's pictures of their kids again. <laughs> right, this <exactly>. is amazing. <laughs> so, not their
1: opinion on a mask. Not or a their opinion shot on a mask. A political I'm deal like,
0: or... I, 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 I'm just not interested in arguing about that on social media. It's not yeah. fun. It's not fun.
1: So, it's not fun. Yeah. So how do you, Aaron, right now, when you think about obviously being the co-founder CEO of Risk Lies, let's talk about leadership for a little bit. Okay, like, so sure. H- how do you define leadership?
0: Oh, that's a great question. Um, you know, I, I've, I've had the good fortune of, of getting to lead this company now for 10 years and work with uh, a team that, um, just like the collective intellect and, and talent of the team that I've had the opportunity to work with, um, is just incredible. And yeah. I, I feel grateful every day for what I get to do. I love, I love my job. Um, you know, uh, one of the things that uh, you know the the role of leader has changed a lot over the course of time of those ten years, yeah. right? Because day one of Riskalyze, there were there were three people in the company, and you mm-hmm. know two years later after we'd almost like, like failed and almost, you know, we ran out, almost ran out of cash and and shut down, but we, we made it through to the other side. Um, the product launched in March of 2013 for advisors. We, you know, it started really, really taking off. Our investors stood behind us. And by the end of 2013, we were 10 people and then we were 25 and then we were 50 and then we were, you know, like 80. And, and I I can't even remember the year by year, but like, you know, today it's nearly 200. Wow. So every stage of that growth has been different and has really challenged me um, to be a different kind of leader and a better kind of leader at every one of those stages. And the challenges have been different every time. Um, But I will say that one of the things that I do think I, man, I can, I can tell you a bunch of things that I got wrong over that time. Okay. One of the things that we got right is that we. We, we actually laid kind of the foundation of culture in the organization on day one. And um, w- where I'm coming from on that is that I was in an organization before that was like a blame-based culture, right? Uh, and a blame-based culture has two objectives. The, the the second objective is to make sure that the company reaches its goals, right? Like that's, that's the second objective. Yeah. The first objective Is to make sure that when the company doesn't reach its goals, I or my team do not get blamed. (laughs) So, so, so you know, I I, that that's a blame based culture. And there were a bunch of things, you know, that I just thought were dysfunctional that I didn't want to see happen in a company that I led. And so we started uh, in 2011 with three of us saying you know, let's articulate some core values that we care about that the three of us want to kind of aspire to in this brand new company that's now like a couple hours old, okay? And, and so we talked about that. We kind of put that down on paper. Now, I'll be honest, we didn't use that a lot for the first two years. We were right. still three people. Okay. Head down, you can't breathe, you're underwater. Exactly. But when we got out to the other side and we started growing as an organization, we quickly, you know, realized like it was up on the wall. It was right there, but we quickly realized how critical it was going to be because (sighs) see, we wanted to be the same organization at 10 people that we were at three. So we had to use those values that we decided we wanted to work around to be our filter to bring in those seven people that were joining us and were tripling the size of our of our little organization back yep. then in 2013, yep. right? And then we did it again, and then we did it again and then we did it again. And, you know, those same values, we've 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 tweaked it in 2014. I think we added two. In 2020, we changed one of them and we re-articulated all of them to go like a level deeper in how we talk about it. And you can read all this on riskalize.com/slash values. We just put them out there on the web. Okay. so people can check it out. Um but but we um you know they have become our north star. So Uh, because of that, there's a couple of things that have happened. Number one, we we have brought the right people into this organization all the way up to nearly 200 employees because we use our values to hire. And there's actually like, I can't interview every single person who comes aboard now, but we instituted a 15 person, nine values team of people that are like really advanced in our values to do that veto interview. And they can, and it's cross-functional, right? So they might be interviewing an engineer and they have no idea if this engineer is competent at being a software engineer or not, right? Because they're a salesperson or they're a, a, you know, an advisor success person, right? But they do know whether or not that person is a great fit for our values and they'll veto somebody who is not. And as a result, we make sure that the people coming into our organization uh, actually fit our values. There you go.
1: So there um, they are, right? If you're watching this now, it says, we are customer obsessed, value creating, relentless engineers of delight, right? So yep. that, that's your, delight is, your deal, is one right? of those
0: nine values. There you go. It's the first of the nine values. If you scroll up just a little bit more, you can see all nine okay. and they're kind of, they're kind of there on the screen. So delight, delight, and focus, focus yep. integrity. integrity, respect, communication, ownership, teamwork, uh, freedom
1: and accountability. So when you see those, you just read those off. Tell, yeah. tell me, let's pick one. Let's pick one. And, uh, let's, let's, okay. On so it.
0: here's, here's the big one. Cause this'll, this'll go to one of my failures as a leader. Okay. Okay.
1: So in 20, 20- appreciate the transparency.
0: Absolutely. In 2017, we started hiring like crazy and I couldn't do that 10 minute veto interview anymore. And so I, I, I was like, well, I got to let that go so we can scale. And frankly, in 2017 and 2018, we did some hiring that did not really fit our values too well. So if you go to sure. the teamwork value, that's okay. We don't need it on the screen, but I can talk about it on the, on the teamwork value. We ended up rearticulating this in 2020 because we went through a painful process. I kind of realized at the end of 2018, I'm like, there, there was that we had this all company retreat, brought everybody together. And there was just a small subset of our talent. I'm like, how did these people get into this organization? I don't get it. Okay. Okay. <laughs> And so we had to go through this painful process of, of, of turning over parts of our organization in a big way. I had to make some changes wow. on our leadership team and, you know, and it was, look, I, 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 in the, at the end of the day, if you go back and analyze it, it was probably, you know, as much as 25 or 30% of our people that we ended up making some changes and the teamwork value really exemplifies it it articulates what we are looking for we we talk about we you know some things that we don't want and i actually used the word reject like we reject people with a victim mentality we reject you know mercenaries who don't care about our mission Right. And there's there's a few other categories of of kind of people that we reject. But, you know, the victim mentality, you know, concept is a huge one for us because our culture just doesn't work with people who sit around, they go, I don't know, things will never get better. It's like, no, we're builders. Like we go do, we go fix. We, we are customer obsessed and we're trying to engineer moments of delight in the everyday work of our advisors. So we go fix and do, we don't sit back and go, yeah, it's never going to work. Okay.
1: And isn't that amazing too, sorry to interrupt, but I mean, it's it's funny because it's funny you're saying this. I was at a uh, soccer trial for, I have four boys and Mm -hmm. uh, so this is my 13 year old and I'm sitting there, I'm watching, you know, there's a, I don't know, hundred and something, hundred kids there to say. Yeah. And I hear this mom who I don't know, pick up the phone and she's talking about, we'll call the kid, little Billy, right? Little Billy yeah. over here, you know, little Billy, it's just when there's something going to go wrong, he's going to be there. And she goes on this, like I don't know who she was talking to, but like this five minute rampage about how little Billy's always going to have this or little Billy's going to have that. And I thought, you know what? I feel sorry for little Billy. Yeah, little Billy probably is
0: life. Little Billy's screwed. Yeah. Little Billy probably is gonna always have those problems because he's being told and taught that he mm-hmm. has no impact on his own situation. Yeah. Can't right?
1: control my own choice. That's yeah.
0: right. That's right. Yeah. And so we really we want to bring people into our organization that feel empowered to create change, not people who who are just kind of victim mentality people and yep. just go, yep. Yep. This is just the way the world is, you know, mercenaries who, who just go, I'm look, I'm just here to chill out and make some money. Like, I don't really care. Okay. Like we're not interested in that kind of person in this organization. That's not what we're looking for. So when we clarified that, and when we instituted this nine values team, it really changed everything because now, so I still approve every single offer letter request. They want to hire somebody wants to hire somebody. I'm going to get an email. Okay. Here's the person Here's what we know about the person, right? And here are the notes from the cross-functional person who did the nine values interview. And you know, I've never had to say no wow. because that hiring manager is not going to send me somebody who the nine values interview person vetoed and said, this is bad. Like this person does not fit our culture, right? Yeah, that's on them. Yeah, exactly.
1: That's incredible. I love that. And so so you have this interview. So talking to the business leader right now, so yeah, you have yeah. the interview and- you go through each one of those nine values. Is that what? so what what typically
0: happens is the hiring manager, they they care about the values too, the good ones, right? Yeah. And and frankly, I think we've got all good hiring managers here. I don't know of any of our hiring managers that are not caring about that. So they're they're thinking about and talking about values in their core interview. But the thing that we're guarding against here is that hiring manager, let's let's use engineering as an example. They're an engineering leader, okay? They can very easily be blinded by technical brilliance on the part of this candidate, okay. And that's when you start making deals with yourself. You're like, "Ah, eh, I get that there's this yellow flag and this yellow flag and this yellow flag, but they're so good at X, Y, and Z. I'm gonna watch this and and make sure that they, you know, and that's when you start making deals with yourself and you start compromising, okay? Yeah. So what we've done is we said, well, the last thing you've got to do is as a hiring manager is you open up this thing we call the nine values assessment and they go through and they rate the person and provide evidence on why they think they're a good fit across the nine values and then they send that assessment to this cross-functional person on the nine values team which is like let's call it a one of our customer care leaders okay? okay And the customer care leader is going to do a 30 minute interview. It's not that heavy. It's just a 30 minute interview. They're armed with, here's what the hiring manager thinks about their fit with our nine values. Okay. And they're going to zero in on one or two where they think the rating is a little lower. Maybe we don't have good evidence or whatever, but they're going to talk with this person and get a feel for the person. And they're going to zero in where they think that person might be weak and they're going to dig there. And at the end of the day, they're going to have a pretty good assessment of whether or not that person is a good fit for the values in just in just 30 minutes. But the cool thing is I'll tell you what, no customer care leader gets blinded by the technical brilliance of an engineer. They don't even know it. They don't even know. (laughs) They don't speak that that, language. Right. Whereas, you know, same thing. If the customer care leader is hiring a, a customer care rep, you know, they might be, you know, blown away by this person's ability to communicate over the phone or something like that. Right. But an engineer is going to go, yeah, but I don't see the level of integrity that I think we're looking for. I don't see the level of teamwork or accountability that I'm looking for. I'm worried that when they talked about this, this, and this with their last job, that that doesn't fit how we think about customer delight, right? So it's the cross-functional nature of, of the nine values team that really makes it work.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. What a great process to go through. I mean, you can never negotiate your values, right? That's I mean- right. You can't, right. And if you're negotiating your values, then you don't want to be around that person or that, that company anyway, because that's, that's not good. So 100%. you talked about your mission statement, you know, our mission statement is to help people achieve a future greater than their past. And that's so, awesome. and so when we sit down with people, it is, it's, it doesn't mean your past is bad. Right. right. But it just means everybody, I think the ones that we work with and the people that work with us, you choose to want to be a little bit better, right? You hear people right. say it'd be 1% better, 1% better. Yep. And that 1% over time, I think I saw, you know, if you're going to New York City or something like that, you know, on an airplane from LA, that 1% difference is like going to New York or going to like, you know, Amsterdam or something. It's (laughs) it's massive, right? It's massive. And and so I think it's a big deal. And so I think that companies like yours are doing well because your mission aligned, your vision aligned, and you're getting that done early in the process. Would you agree with that?
0: Yeah, no, I think that's right. And I think that it would have been really hard for us to grow and scale as a business if we didn't have that that values framework at our core. And yeah. and one of the things that I've found too is when we roll out something new that we're gonna do, like one of the things that we're just starting to do is we're like, we're, we're shifting to written narratives to evaluate like product ideas and big strategic decisions. Mm instead of PowerPoint slides, right? So it's something yep. Amazon's kind of known for. I was a little bit of a skeptic at first, like, are we just creating a bunch of work for the sake of work? But I think there's a way that we can kind of leverage yeah. that concept in the risk-alized way. But one of the things I did when I was preparing you know, my remarks to kind of roll it out is we go back to our values to say why doing this makes sense in the context of our values right mm. and if you're always able to come back and put in context why something that you're going to do in the business makes sense in, in 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 the context of your values i think that that just makes you a lot stronger as an organization yeah. and it yeah. stops you from going down bad cul-de-sacs
1: yep i couldn't agree more man so and i'm assuming that's how you said earlier i saw my research too it said you put uh, said put the cult in culture right or put the cult <laughs> yes. in your culture and i'm assuming that's yes. part of it isn't it
0: Yes, for sure. I you know, look, there's uh we we work really hard to try to pay people well and fairly. Yeah. We work really hard to create a great workplace that people love to work in, and I think that we're really competitive on all those traditional things that lure great talent into an organization. But that said, I would argue that the greatest form of compensation that we have is that you get to work in an organization that you love working in, that is, that is handcrafted and designed to let you do great things and work with great people and not spend all of your days like navigating politics, the bad kind of politics, right. And, and red tape, and you can't get anything done. Like this is an organization where you can make an impact and that's meaningful to people. They love that. And frankly, it's a big thing that in, in good times and bad times has helped us retain talent.
1: Love it. So talk to us about the, what do you see the best advisors in in the world doing? You're working with, you know, tens of thousands of them. So what what are you, what is that maybe one or two or three things that you think yeah. makes an advisor tick or makes them unique for their client?
0: Well, uh, I, uh, two different sides of the coin on, on the, on the first uh, you know, first thing that I'll bring up is something that's more focused on the profession of being an advisor, but advisors, who view their role as, uh, you know, from a from a servant leadership mindset for their clients. Like, like they are there for, for some of those purposes that we talked about before, yeah. to help their clients navigate tough situations and successfully get to that other side that allows them to do things like you know, retire with dignity and security that allows them to send grandkids to college that might not ever have gone to college. It allows them to change the world through nonprofit giving that might not have happened otherwise. Right. Mm-hmm. Like the, the advisors who are focused on service and not just focused on, this is my job do remarkably better in this world. Right. Yep, and, yep, and yep. I, I just think that that's universally true. And I, I've seen that over and over again, the flip side is that and i i think you've probably uh, seen and heard this from your chair a number of times there's a lot of financial advisors who solely focus on the profession side of the coin and they forget that they're business owners on the other side of the coin right and it's the advisors who are mindful of the fact that they're also business owners who are trying to build a business that they need to think about their organization whether it's you know two people or whether it's 10 people or whatever size or scale they're building towards okay like advisors who are thinking about their their firm as a business ultimately end up, I think, serving their clients better and be more successful in the long run.
1: That's great advice. That's true too. We always talk about manage the P&L, manage your business. You, you know, we, people are visionary. You're in business for yourself, but not by yourself. And it's a cheesy right. saying, but it's true, right? right? It is it's true. Because they But we also focus on, yes, we're an independent firm. We're an independent yeah. RIA, but we also need to be interdependent with our advisors. Yes. Yeah. And it's critically absolutely. important for us. And we've learned that over the years. Right? We've been yeah. around for seven plus years now. And, wow. and you, you learn that early. You're uh, you don't earn, learn that early. You, you earn it as you go. So yeah, that's, uh, that's talk true. to us. Sorry, go ahead. No, no. I just saying that's true. Yeah. So talk to us about this. Hope takes root. Sure. Well, Charity, man. Hope takes asking. root.
0: Yeah, well, so our our I can't I can't tell that story without first mentioning the fact that we're a three time adoptive family. So my my wife and I have adopted three times internationally. Our first son Spencer was born in South Korea, and he is uh, our fourteen year old. And then our daughter Emma was born in Ethiopia. She's our twelve year old. She thinks she's nineteen, but she's still only twelve. <laughs> and then our oldest Teddy joined us about five years ago, and he is seventeen. And so awesome. So they're they're an incredible group of kids. We like to call ourselves your typical average Korean Ethiopian American family, you know. And <laughs> right. so they're everywhere. Yeah, uh, they're you're totally. It's a large community. So you know, we we uh, when we adopted the first couple of times, you know, adoption in Korea is kind of driven for cultural reasons. Adoption in Ethiopia is is more driven because of poverty, right? Yeah. And so visiting Ethiopia for the first time when we adopted Emma really changed us. And, and ended up like getting involved in some nonprofit work there, uh, started out working with an organization called life song that has some incredible schools down in the Southern part of the country now impacting 1300 kids who get two meals a day and a world-class education, and it's keeping them in the family unit that they're in and preventing them from becoming orphans. Uh, and so like really cool project. So we, we helped raise some money to expand that school and grow it from about 200 to about 1300 today and an incredible project. And so along, along the journey there, like we, we took teams back to Ethiopia to kind of, you know, see the project. And on one of those trips, we actually met Teddy. Uh, who ended up becoming the oldest client kid, and uh, we're now renaming them, by the way, Eeny, Meeny, and Miney, because there ain't going to be no Mo. But um, <laughs> but
1: the you That's know we good. we
0: yeah we we we, we had trademarked him. that yeah I, I didn't come up with not original material, but there you go. I but but you know met him on that trip, and one of the things that we you know we met a bunch of other boys who were his friends in that orphanage that that we met him in you know, and we, you you know the solution. To that problem is not just one continent adopting all of another continent's kids, right? Right. Like adoption is a beautiful part of the solution, but it's not the silver bullet. And so we started thinking about like, what are the opportunities these kids after they get out of that school project after they, you know, age out of the orphanage? Like, how do you think about that? And in Ethiopia, it's largely trade school and you have to pay tuition. And, um, that's just a no go for a lot of Ethiopian yeah. kids. Like they don't, they don't have anything it's like the money, the money right. that it's going to take to pay tuition for trade school. So the first thought was, well, why don't we start a, a vocational school that's tuition free? And you're like, okay, well, that's going to be a problem. Like we're going to be on a treadmill trying to raise money to keep the doors open and impact 10 kids, you know, right. or something yeah. like that. Right. So, somewhere along the way, we came up with a different idea, which uh, you know we're in the early stages of, but it looks really exciting. we're like, you know what we're going to start a for profit business in Ethiopia, which is a vocational school hiding in plain sight because we 're going <laughs> to spend twenty percent of the revenue hiring unskilled student workers who are these orphans and vulnerable kids. They have no real contributions to make to the business when they walk through the door. We've got four of them in the organization right now. So we're very, very early stages, but they're building an app for Ethiopian small businesses and shopkeepers to do marketing, like some of the marketing automation stuff that we take for granted here in the United States. They're building that in Ethiopia. And they've got some kids out of university who are full-blown software engineers, very skilled, that are helping to build the technology. But we've got four of these student workers who are learning sales, customer service, some of the technical chops, technical support, oh all those gosh. kinds of things. And so the vision is we're going to we're gonna expand that model and have a bunch of those student workers. And again, it's a vocational school hiding in plain sight. We're paying them instead of them paying tuition.
1: That is amazing. Yeah. That is absolutely cool. amazing. I mean, wait, and again, you. you talk about flipping the script. I think you said that earlier, but yeah. So I mean, you talk about flipping the script, right? That it's, yeah. it, you were all trying to raise money for different things and different, different yeah. thoughts and different people, but man, to then give them something to learn and grow and, you know, be at work on time and what a lunch yeah. hour is and, Yep. And, rejection. and to figure
0: out a way to make that sustainable, because what I love yeah. about this is that we're going to, you know, what we did is we actually raised the startup capital here in the U.S. into a 501c3 as yep. tax-deductible donations. We then funded the creation of this for-profit company in Ethiopia with those donations, I and two other people are the shareholders of that for-profit organization in Ethiopia. We have all signed pledges that if we're ever forced to take a profit distribution, we'll just donate it right back into the same 501c3 fund, right? Which can then reinvest it back into replicating and growing the program. So, you know, capitalism is one of the greatest things on earth for killing poverty. And I think we're about to develop another proof point of that, which I think That's is super exciting.
1: Incredible. But it takes vision and it takes passion, man. Well, I, you know,
0: thank you for that, but it took a lot of other people's vision as well to make yeah. it come to fruition. And the team on the ground there is super talented. So super excited to see how it goes.
1: You can any, meeny, miny, no more. And it takes some dough, Ray, me, <laughs> right. To do those things over there. So I'm going to well get put, real cheesy, well but it's true. It does take some dough to do those things. That's so, right. That's Congrats, right. man. Well, thank we can you can continue talking for hours, I'm sure. But where, where do people find more of Aaron Klein? I know you you, you do obviously Riskalyze co-founder, sure. CEO of that, but you give speeches and, and different things around the around the country. So where can listeners find here. more of you?
0: Sure. Um, there you know I, I have a website at erancline.com. I'm 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 mostly I'm on social media and love chatting with you know great folks, business leaders and advisors yep. and, and everybody in between on on uh, you know Twitter is is usually my um, you know uh, network du jour but uh, but welcome you know, love connecting with uh, with great business leaders and financial
1: advisors. Oh, Put it all in the show notes, man. Put your website, Riskalyze website, all your social media handles, and uh, and also your charity. You guys are doing great work at uh, Hope Takes Root. I love the name. And, man, it's been awesome having you, Aaron. Appreciate your time, and uh, and good luck on your journey. Thank you so much.
0: Tune in next week for another episode of the Circuit of Success with Brett Gilliland on the lineupmedia.fm podcast network. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and through our website, circuitofsuccess.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter and email any questions to info at circuitofsuccess.com. This podcast was a presentation of lineupmedia.fm.